What the hell is life coaching? I mean, really, what is life coaching? And how is it different than executive coaching or even therapy? And isn't all of this really expensive? Is any of it covered by my primary health insurance? Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. On today's show, I talked to Ben Brooks. He's a former business executive who did a turn in human resources. That's where I met him, but HR was only a slight storyline in his amazing career. Ben is now an entrepreneur and founder of a company called Pilot. It's an innovative career startup. They're democratizing executive coaching and helping people take command of their careers. On today's show, Ben and I talk about how you can take command of your career. We also answer questions about coaching, what it is, and why it's important. And finally, we talk about how you can fix work by being a better advocate for yourself. You don't have to hire a life coach for that. So sit tight, everybody, and we'll be right back with Ben Brooks. Work is broken. So is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is breaking things down so you can put them back together and make work something you can enjoy. Let's fix work together. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, everybody. It's Lori Rudiman here. And today I'm here with my dear friend, Ben Brooks. Ben, how are you doing? I am having a super Saturday speaking with you. I'm glad you're here. So why don't you tell us uh, where you're based and what the weather is like? Because we're all having these hellish winters. And so tell us about your winter of discontent. Uh, my winter of disconnect, dis- discontent and disconnect, frankly, uh, has been in New York City, where I live. I live in Manhattan. Uh, I'm between 9th and 10th Avenue, so I'm near the Hudson River. So I get a nice chill that blows down from upstate on the water. Uh, but it is a lovely Saturday here, and the sun is out, and I've got a, a cute new Lululemon look that I was sporting and some new sunglasses. So for my morning coffee run, I was, I was feeling the flow with the weather. And I'm, I'm living into a, a summer that uh, is going to be spring-like through maybe late, late July. Yeah, that's, that's well said. Well, you know, I met you through the world of human resources. And when I think about you and the point in which I met you, you were like the guy in HR. You seem to have it all, but you're not doing that anymore. And it seems like you've disrupted your life and reinvented yourself. And I know you've started a business that you're incredibly passionate about. So who is Ben Brooks today? Well, Ben Brooks today is like a seven-layer bean dip and just keep adding another layer to it, you know? Um, hopefully, they're cohesive, right? It's not going from like carrots to something weird, you know? Um, but, uh, but nonetheless, um, I, I, I did, um, I remember it was such a, a meaty decision to go into HR, and I thought I was sort of deciding for the rest of my career. And I remember the head of HR who I worked with on a rotation said, you know, if you decide to, you know, move into HR for your career. And it was so funny that I went into HR, and then five years later, I was not in HR. I mean, I thought I was walking down a very long hallway and it turned out to be just a short corridor. And now I'm an entrepreneur and I have two businesses and I uh, left the corporate world um, sort of unexpectedly. And I'm happy to talk more about that. But I left thinking I was going to be the head of HR at a mid-sized company. And sort of like I, I don't know, I stepped on a banana peel and I was an entrepreneur one day. Yeah, yeah. wait, wait. Why did you leave corporate America? Tell us more about that. Well, you know, we had, um, uh, I had worked for a CEO and a head of HR at uh, a division of a large global firm. And then we did a bunch of work and then they both got promoted to run the parent company. And uh, there was some consideration of if I kind of went with, with them or not. 
and I stayed. And the, the, the new crew and I didn't get along as well. I mean, we, we, we were, you know, we still connected and talk to this day, but, um, but they just weren't up for the sort of like, let's innovate, let's change, let's make things better. Let's, let's work aggressively. Um, and so I just, it just was sort of an arranged marriage that yeah. didn't work out. Yeah. And, I, and I just at one point said, hey, like, I don't know, this is what I want to do with my talents and where I'm at with my career. And so um, it was interesting, the head of HR at the parent company who I'd worked with, um, incidentally, also named Lori, um, uh, another great woman, uh, she said, you know, she's like, I think it sounds, she's like, it sounds odd being the person responsible for talent at this company of 55,000 people, but I think you've outgrown this company. And yeah. I think that you should like, you know, put your talents in. She's like, if you want to work here, you can work here for the rest of your career. But I think as your friend, I'm telling you, I think you've outgrown it. And so, um, wait, so I wait, made the decision sounds, to leave. That sounds like a gift yes. right there. Like Huge somebody gift. who was honest with you and gave you awesome feedback. And you didn't leave burning down a bridge, nope. right? You didn't light your career on fire. Nope. You left with dignity and respect. And so did you become an entrepreneur right after that? Or did you go wander like Moses out in the desert? So I gave myself a little time. It was funny. Um, a woman I'd worked with who we never got along super well, but we always were collegial and professional. Um, it was like my second to last day and I was kind of making some phone calls and things. And I called her and she said, can I give you some advice? And I was surprised. I said, sure. And she said, take your time, enjoy this, learn. Like, this is like your, if you look back at your career, when you were tired, you have very few times you had sort of a break and, and do. So I, I, I listen to sometimes, you know, wise messages come from unexpected messengers. That's right? right. That's right. That is such sage advice. How many people freak out and run to the next thing or just uh, don't know what to do with themselves in the downtime and fill it with stupid, useless tasks. Right. So totally. you took your time. And what did that look like? You know, I got sinus surgery and I installed a wireless printer inside of a cabinet in my kitchen. So in, in Manhattan, I have a printer now, which is a big thing if you that live in the, cool. in the city. Yeah. Um, and I and I got my apartment you know, decorated by a designer and I did all these things. And um, it was interesting. I went to this executive education course in D.C. and it was with a company that um, wanted me to potentially be one of their instructors and travel the world working with the companies. And, and I was, I had brought them into my previous employer and I knew them quite well. And I traveled with them some before and they put an, uh, uh, name tag on me that said Ben Brooks entrepreneur. And I said, I'm actually unemployed. I'm not an entrepreneur. <laughs> so can we get a new name tag cut? You know? And they said, well, you're in a group of entrepreneurs within this larger hundred person, you know, five day seminar. And I was like, well, I'm not an entrepreneur. I've never wanted to be an entrepreneur. I never thought of myself. I wanted to be in my past, a game show host or an airline CEO or a journalist or a politician, never an entrepreneur. And so uh, it, by the end of that, that, that week, I, that was like my tribe. Those were my people. And they were all from very different walks of life and backgrounds and parts of the world. And I remember um, driving home from D.C. and thinking, gosh, I'm at a fork on the road. I could be an entrepreneur or I could be an employee. And the things I would need to be success to do to be successful on either one of those paths are almost entirely different. Yeah, so are. I need to decide which path. And the thing is, most people, when they think of, they think I, you know, they're like, oh, you, you quit your corporate job to start a business and you knew what your business idea was. I was like, not at all. I had to essentially kind of like leave that for a clearing to emerge for me to figure those things out. And my friends, and I have a lot of friends who are 10 or 15 years older than me, said some of them entrepreneurs, I said, just listen to the market. It will t and I was like, what are you talking about? And they said, well, just listen to people's complaints and solve their problems and charge them money. And so that's what I started to do. And it was just, I decided to take on the identity of an entrepreneur without a business plan or a business idea. And I gave myself two years from April of 2013. I said, I'd give myself two years and I've got enough money in the bank. 
um, and I'll, I'll check it out. But I was very fearful, and I think some of the emotions that everyone else has comes up and wastes their time or does stupid things. I had some of that too. Yeah. And okay. I wrote a list of people I could beg for a job, um, and I literally said like people I could beg for a job, and it was in my Apple uh, notes. And and it was just so interesting. Like I almost thought of myself in this very small way, and in a way where I'd be lucky to have a job. Yet I was a complete all star, and and I worked my ass off since I was like twelve, and I'm bright. But for some reason, my confidence, absent a business card and a senior vice president title and a Fortune two fifty brand, I was kind of like, well, who am I? How do I introduce myself? And so I think my identity was really attacked and but I was given identity by something outside of myself and I think what I found one of the most empowering things as an entrepreneur is to give myself identity from the inside out that no one can take away. You know, it's so interesting to me that you said you became an entrepreneur without a business plan because that I think is a common story that we don't talk enough about. How many people just kind of start at one thing and then pivot and go along and their entrepreneurial journey starts out like kind of like a creek that has mm -hmm. no clear path, and then it becomes a river, right, if they're lucky. Yep. So what are you doing now? I mean, you started out with no business plan. Where did you go? Where did it emerge? Well, what I found out about business plans, and I was a management consultant, and I went to business school, and I'm you know, very business savvy, but nonetheless, business plans are good for one thing, which is to get financing. Because bankers or investors like venture capitalists or, or private equity funds, if you're a larger company, they want to see a plan decide if they should give you money to invest in your business. So if you're not raising outside capital, a business plan is generally not useful. And whatever you put in the business plan is like a wild ask us, right? Yeah. So, so I think your, your, your Creek in analogy is very uh, well made. Right. And that's, um, you know, and, and that's, was my, my, my entrepreneurial journey is just in the continuation of the Crick that was my career, right? Um, Ben's Crick. It's like okay. a show. It's going to come back, you know? Yeah. I um, love it. It sounds like something from the seventies, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I've got an acoustic guitar and, you know, um, it's jangly. Absolutely. It, yes. <laughs> and so I think my career was, was always zigging and zagging and emerging and flowing and drying up a little bit and going over a dam and all that. And, um, the entrepreneurial journey went th that way as well. And I started with advising small business owners on growing their companies. You know, the, the, the Baines, the McKinsey's, the Oliver Wyman, the BCG's of the world do a great job of advising big companies, but for small to mid-sized companies, there's very little advice. And if there is, it's always super niche. It's not even like, it's not even that you're an HR advisor. It's you're an incentive comp, uh, specialist. And what people actually need is someone that can talk to them about everything, about pricing and sales and people and legal and technology and their leadership and their spouse and everything. But, you know, there's this myth out there that you have to get super, super small in order to make a ton of money, right? I mean, that's the lesson that we hear. So people don't even value generalist advice, even if it's good generalist business advice. Is that a myth, though? Because clearly you're doing something right with your fluency in a lot of different areas of business. Yeah, I remember I read um, Daniel Pink had a book uh, maybe a decade ago called A Whole New Mind, and it was about how right-brainers will rule the future. And yeah. he talked about the information economy being about depth, right? And and that, you know, and I remember even meeting an eye doctor once, and he wasn't a cornea guy, he was a retina guy, and he couldn't speak to the cornea because that was outside of his area. And I'm like, it's a freaking eye, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and the point is with the internet, you know, depth can be done in India, Right, because it's very you know focused and 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 things, and so depth got commoditized because it's like you can access it, you can find it, it's a thing. And the, what what he talked about in that book was that you really want to think of yourself as a conductor. It's not about playing the flute or the oboe or the cello. It's about bringing all, having an appreciation for all those, and bringing it all together. And so 
I, I never use the G word. I never call myself sort of a generalist, right? But I think of myself as a broad-based thinker, right? And I have a experience around a lot of different topics. I have a rich collection. I have different, very different language. I think, again, generalist implies sort of just this average mediocrity around uh, things. A dilettante, yeah. Right. Yeah, and so I, and, I, and what I say is, you know, what I, people don't need the world's leading expert at HR when they have a company of 35 people. They need someone that knows marginally more than they do. Yeah. Well said. Well said. So you've been on this journey and you said you're the owner and founder of two businesses. So tell us a little bit about those businesses. So the first one is a uh, business and executive coaching practice. And I've worked with people from nonprofits. I've worked with hedge funds. I've worked with people in real estate. I work with a dog genetics company that's doubling the life expectancy of dogs. Cats might be next, you know? Yeah, I hope so. Although um, they live forever already. Anyway. They are, yeah, they're doing okay, yeah, you know? They do, they do fine, yeah. Um, and, uh, and that's been really fun. But what I realized, you know, about two years in, I was talking with a friend of mine, and I don't know if you're a, a points or miles collector or hoarder with credit cards. Yeah, absolutely. So Why else have a credit card, right? Exactly. So my friend Brian is the points guy. He runs this oh, blog. Oh, yeah. That's a great website. Yeah. So Brian um, just get, you know, we were having, um, I went on a trip with him and I was actually, I was in his car and he's like, well, Ben, like this coaching thing is great. And I had a sold out practice almost. And he's like, but what's the big idea here? What's the points guy of careers? What's the thing, you know? And we were, we, and we both, we kind of were like, yeah, everyone's sort of like a mess about their careers. And we know all these people and they're at, you know, Skadden, one of the top law firms in the, in the city, or they're at Goldman Sachs, or they're here, they're, they're, you know, they're Ogilvy and Mayer. They're all these great companies, but they were like frustrated or stuck or confused or downtrodden or just kind of headless, you know, jumping between companies. And so I thought of the idea of like, how do we give coaching to more people? And the, the big problem I found with coaching is the median cost of a coach, uh, executive coach coordinator at Harvard Business School is about $500 an hour. In New York, it's more than that. And um, it's also done during high opportunity cost time, nine to five while you're at work when you should be selling or delivering or leading or marketing or coding or financing. So we wanted to democratize coaching and give it to more people and give it to them sooner in their career, give it to people that are part of the 98% of people that never get executive coaching level the playing field for people that are first gen, you know, they don't have, you know, some people have a, a father in Greenwich, Connecticut, who's third generation partner at a law firm and can advise you as a, as, as their kid uh, about how to deal with your boss. But a lot of people don't. No, right? more often than not, they don't. You know, I think about my own parents' journey and my mother has a GED and became a Chicago cop. And my father kind of fell into lifetime employment at the phone company with a high school degree. Wow. And they both really struggled throughout their own careers, right? To figure it out, to make sure they were on the right side of political issues. And then I think about my own journey and there was no one for me, no one to model good behavior and no one to tell me, how to succeed in the corporate ranks. And so I really felt the absence of that throughout my career. So you democratize coaching. And so how do you actually do that though? So um, I put my life savings into it because I believe in it so much and Pilot is the name of the company. And the idea is, you know, we want to make coaching this thing that's done in groups, right? Because people, we find that people have better outcomes if they're losing weight or they're saving money or they're raising money for charity. They always do better in groups. We take wait, coaching. wait. They would do um, they would do better with your coaching in a group because I would think that that type of coaching is very vulnerable, right? And very, it's a very tender spot in our hearts to say our careers aren't going well or they're not going in the direction we want or 
you know, we want them to be something different. So they're willing to come together in a group and do it. So what's interesting is, is a lot of what they share is confidential kind of one-on-one with our company or through our software, but then, but they're going through the process together as a cohort or a group. So there's kind of that kind of like we're all in this together, but we were having our own kind of private expressions of that. And so they come together for group, group video coaching every six weeks or so. But then every other week, they're not doing that. They're doing uh, individual confidential, you know, coaching assignments where they can kind of bear their soul or whatever. And we make sure that the group conversations are more around sort of positive things around the future or goals rather than maybe something really personal or nubby that we um, less likely to talk about, you know, openly. And, and And I think the thing is, is that, you know, like I work out with a personal trainer or like I I see my shrink every week as well. I meditate every day. And I have these various practices that work for me. And they're just sort of like built in and they keep me sort of steady. They keep me getting better, right? There's someone else thinking about me and my life and my health and success. Yeah. And we wanted Pilot to be the same thing, that it's not a three-day retreat, that you get a nice binder and you come back excited like you found religion. And then a month later, you're like kind of back to your old devices. Right. right? That's just a serotonin spike. That's all that is. So you've democratized coaching. You're using a web-based or an app platform to deliver that, correct? Who's your buyer? Are individuals investing or are companies investing? How does that work? So it's a great question. We started selling to consumers. We thought, gosh, like be happier at work. And and, here's the super affordable coaching thing. And we um, ran into a wall on that. We hit 2% of our sales goal. Mm. And we basically found that people loved our product when we do all the testing, but they kept saying one sentence and it was very, very consistent. They'd say, my company should pay for this. Wow. Wow. And, And we talked to a number of people that are mutual connections of ours, HR analysts and software folks. And they all said, yeah, like employee entitlement beyond undergrad or graduate school is really high. And it'll be 10 years before people start paying even nominal money for their own career advancement and development. So we just, we were just too soon. And despite a lot of good efforts, so we switched to selling to companies. So now the company pays for it. And and it and, you know, oftentimes so far for us, it's been people outside of HR actually buying it um, that have said, hey, like, you know, what HR does is, is okay, but like we want something else or something different. And they write the check. And we've got some people in HR also buying saying, hey, this would be a wonderful compliment to the other things that we're doing. You know, um, it's, I think, not necessarily a myth out there. It's more of a fact that most companies suck and would not make that kind of investment in their workforce. So what types of companies are saying yes to this? What types of leaders really think this is important for their employees? I think ones that are thinking about their future. I think companies that are thinking about this quarter and their numbers are not doing this. And Pilot is very, very affordable. So it's less about the expense outlay, but it's like the willingness to, you know, have that sort of responsibility. And we, we talk about employee responsibility, but also the company responsibility to, to support individual owned development. And that's kind of a macro trend is individual owned company supported professional development and growth. Yeah. And we're, we're right in the center of that. And so it's, it's varied. I mean, you know, MetLife is our biggest customer. And you may not think of a you know older insurance company as is, but they absolutely love our product. Their people love it, and we're working with a lot of high income earners, like mid career people. We have a one group that's all females, and it's a female sales professionals. And you know, but we've got you know nonprofits. Uh, we've got you know Cadillac, um, Pandora Radio, Pinterest, some hospitals, and so it's it's been surprising. It's not necessarily oftentimes tech startups and HR tech in particular. Um, but I guess this is true across all tech. We'll sell to other progressive tech companies. 
So you go and you say, okay, we're going to go do this. And so, so Pinterest would be a good example. And you just sell to a bunch of Pinterests, right? And a bunch of yeah. Silicon Valley sort of companies. But that has really not been um, where we've seen a lot of interest. It's companies that are that are much more established, that have tried a lot of other things. And often that have um, longer tenured employees. And they're thinking about that. And they, they kind of want to do more. And we always kind of use the analogy, if you got on British Airways and you, you know flew to London, there's usually like international first class and there's business and there's coach. And pilot is sort of the upgrade to business. For a lot of people, you neglect and coach. You've got people in first. You probably have executive coaches for your C-suite. But there's like tons of people in coach you wish you could put in business class. And that's kind of where pilot sits. Yeah, I think most of the people listening to this do sit in coach and would love to be upgraded to business class. So this is right in line. You know, I remember back in the day when I worked in human resources, we would recommend executive coaches and there was some credentialing involved and there was actually some certification involved. Do you carry any of that personally? Do you have certification or credentialing or is that overstated? Um, it's funny. So the National Career Development Association, I got certified in as a career coach with them, um, but I don't like there's... Um, the International Coaches Federation that has like a bunch of organizations that they then accredit. Um, but I didn't go through any coaching certification program. And it's interesting in my, I was very, I thought I needed to do a lot more of that besides the Career Development Association. And in my sales process as a coach, I have been asked a sum total of one time <laughs> from not just people that chose to do business with me, from anyone that considered doing business with me. Uh, if I had a coaching certification, I've also been asked one time by a different person if I had an MBA. And that like, and it was it was much more about like the referral. I think I did a good job with my website and telling my story and testimonials and my approach and all those sort of things. And I think that um, I'm very clear people, you know, it's like, hey, like, no, I'm not gonna, you know, some people that have a certification will have a binder and say, here's a 12-step process to coaching, and we're gonna put you on the process. And I look at it in a much more sort of bespoke way. Yeah. Um, but I think, I mean, I think there are programs, there's one called accomplishment coaching. That's excellent. And it's like a year long thing. And multiple of my friends have gone through it and got a ton out of it. So I refer people there and there's one at Columbia business school and NYU here in New York that are both very good. So I've referred multiple. So, so I'm, so I think for the right person in particular, if they've never had a coach of their own, if they've never been in HR, if they, you know, but I've had, I had my own executive coach in my twenties and my company had paid for it. It was a remarkable thing. So and I've just done a lot of work on myself, but I think if people are kind of just wading into it and like, don't even know, like those programs can be extremely helpful. So when we come back, we're going to talk about why people get frustrated at work and quit to start their own thing and then ultimately fail. And then we're going to talk about different theories about fixing work. And then finally, I know you've got some messages related to um, careers rooted in accountability and systems and how to fix work. So we're going to talk about all that when we come back with Bren Brooks. So everybody sit tight. We'll be right back after the break. Hey, are you ready to podcast like a pro? then you need a secret weapon, someone who can make it easy, where all you have to do is show up and be the host. At One Stone Creative, that's what we do. Everything. Yeah, everything. Imagine, every time you sit down to record, you know what your topic is. You want a script? We can do that too. Then you record it, drop it in a folder, and that's it. Our team will take it from there. Production, show notes, uploads, blog posts, social media assets, swipe copy, like I said everything. Book a call with the podcast strategist today. Just go to onestonecreative.net slash podcast. That's onestonecreative.net slash podcast. And we'll take it from there. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here today with Ben Brooks, my dear friend that I met in Human Resources, who's now a founder and a CEO. And I'll let him tell more about his story in a second. But first, Ben, I'm really curious 
There are so many people out there who get frustrated by work, like me, like you potentially, and quit to start their own thing, and then they ultimately fail. So what's happening with these individuals? How can they set themselves up for success? And do they need a business coach? What's that all about? Well, I think if you've been in a romantic relationship for a while, you know, the idea of Tinder could be very alluring where you can swipe and just find something amazing. And I think that the idea of, of hitting the, the effort button and leaving and burning it all down is, is enticing to people on their worst days. Um, but very often people that leave don't understand what didn't work about work for them. And they had done little to try to address it. They hadn't done the marriage counseling equivalent in this analogy. And so they hadn't really taken up their agency and responsibility and figuring those things out and and taking action and and experimenting. And I love being an entrepreneur, but I will tell you, it's generally not a good idea. Yeah. Going to the movies. A lot of people. Yeah. Going to the movies is a great idea. Going to the beach is a great idea. You know, like having, you know, like, I don't know, having, having cocktail maybe could be a great idea. Get a hobby. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But but starting a business is generally not a good idea. And, and, and I think that um, I'd say probably, you know, of the sort of like knowledge worker workforce, probably 98% of people should be employees. Yeah. So what, what surprises you about being an entrepreneur, both positively and negatively? I think on the positive side, I've never felt smarter or more appreciated Uh, People actually listen to me and it's not relative to which function I'm in or who my boss is or what my title is or which previous company, like people listen and they take action and, you know, I suggest things and people launch products or they fire people or they acquire things or they, you know, change how they treat others. And that's been really positive. I think on the maybe challenging side is being an entrepreneur, you know, I thought of, you know, slide decks and, you know, bookkeeping and, and lawyers. And like, that's all like been fine. It's been the personal side that's been the hardest because I am the engine, right? I'm the power plant of the business. And so if you thought about a power plant that has to generate every day, like I can't have a day where I'm generating at 30% or the plant's just kind of down because I'm in a bad mood or, and I, and I think early on I would have like a lot of inconsistency. It was sort of like, you know, if you're like, you know, certain developing countries, like, is the power going to be on today? That was a bit like my business. And then the results, you know, the momentum, the money, right? The learning would be highly variable. And so I think I've had to learn a lot to steady myself, to manage my anxiety, to manage my my insecurity and my fear, all those things. Can you talk about that? Because I think that's so important. You know, when I hear workers complain about their work-life balance, like actual employees, I think, what's it like to have PTO? You know, like, what's it like to have a vacation day that's paid for by someone else, right? So I um, don't have a lot of sympathy sometimes when people complain about work-life balance, but it sounds like you've done some good work as an entrepreneur to get your own work-life balance under control because it can be insane. You know, there's high rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide among founders and entrepreneurs. So how do you fight the battle to stay healthy? Well, one of the mistakes I made early on was thinking in this delayed gratification sense that like I was going to get to some, you know, utopia later of like, just I'm going to be rich and I'm going to have all these things taken care of and I'm going to have all this power and notoriety and I will just suffer very Catholic. Like I will suffer now to get to the gates later. Right. You know, and that was a dumb way of thinking about it on my part. And, and what I sort of needed to reframe, and it took me honestly a couple of years and a lot of work on myself at kind of the, the level of like soul, right, um, was to, to find a way to make each week enjoyable, regardless of the conditions or circumstances that like I needed to generate pleasure and satisfaction and learning and delight and connection 
every week along the way, even if it was an 80 hour week, even yeah, if things were kind of falling apart, even if there were challenges. And so I've started to delight in the process and the journey of where I am now, rather than think I should be somewhere that I'm not because for so long I tortured myself comparing and FOMO and, and shame and, and, and being really bummed out, you know, that things were going slower than I thought they should go. And now I'm now sort of being like, this is where we're supposed to be this week. Let me make the best of this and enjoy it. And also like move the business forward. You know, I think there's such good lessons in that for average workers, right? People who have normal jobs, because as you're sacrificing for your own business, some people sacrifice at that level for businesses where they don't own any equity, right? They're given 110% to the company and 2% to their spouses and 3% mm -hmm. to their children. So what I hear in you is really about um, finding joy, finding some interesting things to do during the week and really focusing on your own individual health. That is so hard for most Americans, Catholic or not. Do you have any insight into why that's so difficult for us to like be healthy as individuals? Why are we so fucking stressed out about work? Well, I think one of the things that we found, we talked to some career science PhDs and a researcher in his 60s who studied careers. And the number one determinant of satisfaction in a career, according to this guy, um, was the degree to which people advocated for themselves. So distinct from success, satisfaction, and we find that there are, in pilot, we, we have a lot of women that use pilot and absolutely love pilot, we have, but we find that women have much greater uh, struggle in advocating for themselves and um, tend to be, generally speaking, more other-oriented. And so it's been a, you know, they like pilot because we interrupt the cycle and we say, hey, you need to focus on yourself and you need to advocate for yourself. Yeah. And, and I, I read last week in the New York Times, I was on a business trip and the chief science officer at Match.com, who's a female, does this research and the study, and this, this kind of displayed the point around advocacy perfectly. 90% of heterosexual men said that they would um, embrace a woman asking them on a date. 13% of heterosexual females felt comfortable doing so. And that's a form of self-advocacy as well. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So I think about um, self-advocacy and so many individuals who are often told in society they have no worth anyway, are expected to come to work, right, and negotiate for themselves, be their own advocates. And I think women, people of color, members of the LGBT community worry about the narcissism we see in some of the majority groups or the dominant groups in the in companies. And we don't want to be like that, right? Mm -hmm. We want healthy narcissism. We yeah. don't want to be unchecked narcissists. So how do you encourage and enable people to become healthy narcissists, right? Because that's what it takes. It, it takes us uh, having a healthy ego, right? Um, being our own best version of ourselves and being confident enough that we're bringing that to the workplace. So how do you do that? Well, I think a lot of it's the golden rule. You know, if the roles were reversed, how would you want someone advocating to you? Right. And that's kind of the fundamental thing we always start with with coaching is like, how would you want someone to approach? So it's not a hostage situation. You're not bringing tons of emotion to it. Uh, if you can manage it yourself, manage it yourself. I mean, the things that people don't advocate for sometimes are so simple, like a second monitor. You know, you may have a, a sister who's got dialysis on Thursdays at four o'clock and core hours are nine to five. You just figure out your schedule and you make up the time you get home or you come in an hour early. And it's often the smallest things that people don't think to ask. They say, gosh, you know, I, I never get you know invited to that meeting, but they never say that they want to be. Yes, right? right. People want to go to conferences and they never ask or they never say which one they want. Like everyone is in such a passive and that's where we have this kind of, you know, paternal relationship, you know, um, you know, with HR and management. And then you're here, you are this little employee and you may make, you may make six figures and you may have, you know, you know, be in, a, in an office and all this stuff. And yet you still show up and kind of act like a kid waiting to be told what you can and can't do and to be tapped.
Yeah, that learned helplessness is so real. You know, I knew I was an entrepreneur when I finally got a chair that fit me. I'm five feet tall, and I worked for 12 years in corporate America with a chair that was always the wrong size and Mm -hmm. did not match my body. And they were great Herman Miller chairs, right? But nobody thought to order the C or whatever version of it that was appropriate for little Lori Rudiman. And I think now, how stupid is that, right? We focus on ergonomics and all sorts of other ways, but I didn't feel the agency to ask yes. here that fit me. That is really interesting. And, and it's, you know, one of my former colleagues is now the head of HR at the NBA. And I met with them a few months ago. And I said, anyway, said, we're talking about talent, things like that. And he said, you know, they had five people had resigned like, like in the last week or so. And they were all regrettable attrition people that they didn't want to quit. And he sat down with all five of them and not even a formal exit interview, but just to say like, what's up. And they all resigned for reasons that the NBA could have addressed and not a single one had spoken up to anyone at the NBA around their needs. God, and, and, they, and it wasn't title and pay, by the way, which is, you know, that's the thing. The recruiting industrial complex has got everyone sort of bamboozled into that so they can make more money, right? And they really screw people on their careers, right? You know, don't yeah, like I that. I disagree with you at all. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, because they make a certain percentage of whatever they place you for. So yeah, totally. they want you fighting for cash instead of other things that can make your life better. Absolutely. Although <laughs> cash is still important. My God. I mean, how often do we not pay women and people yep. of color and, you know, people in all sorts of um, micro communities, not the same amount that they deserve, but it's more than cash, right? What else is it? Totally. And it may be things that cash will come later if you have the conditions to be successful and engaged, right? You get, you get to be on that special team. You get to work with this new group of clients. You get to help implement the system. You know, you get to lead the presentation to the board, whatever those things that then are going to, you know, those things will beget other responsibilities where cash will come. And I'm all about like ask for cash. Like that's a great thing. But I think that, that, that oftentimes the agency is around other things that really impact our satisfaction, yeah, don't don't stop with the cash, right? Go beyond, I think is the message here. And if in the test, the test for people, if you're wondering at home, gosh, am I advocating for myself a lot or enough? I would say, when's the last time you were told no? And how often are you told no? My guess is it was a long time ago and infrequently. And if you're not being, if you're not hearing no, you're not asking enough. Because if you think, oh, well, I advocate and I get what I want. Well, if you're not hearing no, you're not advocating enough because you should be getting no's or, or counter proposals or later or criterion, if this, then that. And so most people just don't hear no because, again, that taps into rejection and fear and shame. So they you know, avoid that. I do have this theory about work that we fix work by fixing ourselves. And so often we bring our family of origin trauma to work. And so I think you're right. People avoid no because it taps into this you know, inner dialogue that they're having with themselves about stuff that happened when they were five years old that's not mm-hmm. happening in the present day. So it makes me wonder how some of the work that you're doing around meditation and mindfulness has really helped to center you individually and make you a better careerist, right? You're in the present today, aren't you? Or trying to be. Yeah, I think any coach, if they're a credible and legitimate coach, we have multiple coaches on the pilot team, should always be working on themselves and keeping themselves as an integrity to, you know, kind of working on ourselves first before we work on others. There's a relatability. And I think part of it is just to be present, to think, you know, sometimes even my calendar, it's like this weird game of Tetris. And I'm like, oh, there's a spot. Let's fit something in there. Versus saying, do I want to go to that event? Do I want to speak to that person? Does this need to be a call? Do I want to be involved in this at all? And for so long, I was doing the should list was a mile long. I'm a big shoulder. And so I think that that was a, you know, for me to kind of slow my roll and to stop and say like, well, how do I feel about that? Do I want that? I mean, even, you know, I got all caught up in the, the sort of HR conference scene 
And there were some delightful, lovely people I met, but in general, I didn't enjoy it that much. And I started going like, well, I think I should and keep my contacts. I'm like, no, like that's not what, you know, I, I have a limited amount of time on this earth. We will all die. I will die someday. I don't know when that is. I don't want to spend it doing things that I don't think are things that, that provide me joy or, or make me smarter or make me, you know, in those regards. And so I stopped doing a lot of that and found different things. You know, Ben, one of the joys about being on the HR conference circuit is that I met a ton of really great people like you, and I met my friend Lars Schmidt, and I met my friend Tim Sackett, who's a previous guest on the show, by going out into the conference world. And I know you don't speak at HR conferences really anymore, but where do you speak and where would you like to speak in the future? Well, I, I got to, all the people you mentioned, I got to meet as well through that circuit and, and uh, thought they were fantastic speakers. I've been wanting to speak more to share this message around commanding your career and I've been speaking, whether it's with business schools, I've been speaking internally at companies at their own uh, sales leadership or executive offsites and things like that. But I'd like to be speaking, I actually would like to be back to some HR conferences and I would like to share this message because I think so much of what we're trying to do is to set up and enable HR professionals to be heroes in their companies and uh, bridge the gap so employees can take up their responsibility rather than always pointing at HR to do something. You know, I can also see this message resonating at like project management conferences and sales leadership training, right? And sales kickoff meetings and uh, when they bring in a speaker for president's club events, things like that. So I really see your message really uh, permeating through a lot of different aspects of the organization. Have you had an event where you spoke that you just really enjoyed it? Like you loved the audience, you loved the people in attendance. Who was that and what was it like? I just spoke to MetLife's National Sales Conference, and the whole thing is about growing yourself to grow your business, your top and bottom line of your book. And really, the the larger narrative is around that we can all act and think like entrepreneurs in our careers, that entrepreneurship isn't reserved for people like you or I that file corporate tax returns with our own entities, that anyone can act and think entrepreneurial. You don't need to quit your job to act and think like an entrepreneur. It's kind of available to all of us. And that is around taking responsibility, being flexible, learning, being bold, et cetera. So that was a great event because um, I love salespeople. MetLife is a fantastic, one of our biggest customers. They're fantastic. And it just, I, I worked with a speech coach and I've done a lot of speaking, but I took it to the next level. And I felt very proud of my storytelling and my vulnerability and all those things. And I want to be doing a lot more of that. So if there's one message you want to leave with our listeners about their career, about agency, about their role within an organization, or even about entrepreneurship, what is that one message you'd like people to hear? Well, Pilot, our, our slogan is command your career. And you think about, we use kind of aviation analogies, you think about uh, the unfortunate you know, incident with Southwest Airlines you know, earlier by the female pilot, one of the first um, fighter pilots in the Navy, by the way, fantastic job. If you listen to the air traffic control recording, how cool and calm and professional. She saved probably a lot of lives. That could have gone wrong very, very easily. And, and uh, you know, you think about how cool and calm and collected and command she was of that aircraft. People need to be the same way about their careers. Situationally aware, take total responsibility, be decisive, be vocal, move things forward, patient, calm. And if, and if you can do that and you can really command your career, you'll have a great career no matter what industry and no matter what your ambition. You may not want to be a manager. It may not be about going up some sort of ladder. It may just be around certain boundaries or providing the best service for your clients or doing work that's extremely high quality you're really proud of. But if you can find out what commanding your career looks like and, and day-to-day advocate for yourself and be a standard, be responsible for making work both successful and satisfying on your terms, you'll have a great career. 
Amazing stuff, Ben Brooks. This is why we're friends and this is why I absolutely admire you. Good job, dude. Listen, if people want to learn more about the difference between executive coaching, life coaching, what you do at Pilot, anything about you at all, where can they find you? So pilot.coach, C-O-A-C-H is our website. You can chat on our website with our team. Um, I share a lot on LinkedIn. I love uh, LinkedIn for sharing and all my you know, Instagram and Ben Brooks NY on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, so add me on LinkedIn or follow me and uh, uh, or reach out. There's a lot we can share. I love it. You know, your Instagram account is a source of joy in my life. So I feel like I live vicariously through you. So thanks for sharing that. Absolutely. I'll be sharing more. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Ben, it was great to have you today and we'll see you soon. Glad to be here. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Hope you enjoyed my chat with Ben Brooks. He's actually Ben fucking Brooks. He's so awesome. And if you let him, he will change your life. So take advantage of this podcast. Make sure you connect with Ben on the web. He's now part of your network. And connect with me at L. Rudiman and Let's Fix Work. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave a review. Let's Fix Work is a production of One Stone Creative, and I get all the best advice from Audra Casino and Megan Doherty. I want to thank you for listening and sharing the show via iTunes and your favorite podcast player. That's all for now. We'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Fix Work. Wouldn't you love to get your hands on Lori's no-holds-barred, honest HR handbook for employees and pros alike? Download it for free at lorirudiman.com slash DIYHR.